This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodney. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Michael Olswang, author of Symbolism, Modern Thought, and Ancient Egypt. After much study, reflection, and also visits to many ancient Egyptian monuments, Michael has come to the conclusion that the development of consciousness was the essential project of the priests of ancient Egypt, and that one of the means they used to achieve this end was the expression of spiritual truths by means of symbolism. Modern thought and ancient Egypt are both based in symbolism. Michael Alswang, after obtaining degrees from UCLA and the University of Wisconsin at Madison, made his career as manager of documentation services for software companies in the U.S. and France. At the same time, he was and still is an independent writer, translator, and researcher in the fields of ancient civilizations, Egyptology, psychology, and spirituality. He has published various articles on these themes in European periodicals. He is also the translator of Pierre Gordon's The Original Revelation. He now makes his home in both Paris and Provence in France. Michael Alswang, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for being with us uh, for this conversation about your book, Symbolism, Modern Thought, and Ancient Egypt. We'll begin, uh, as we uh, uh, now customarily do with first-time guests on the show, by asking you to, or inviting you to, uh, cast your mind back to youth and childhood and ask if there um, are any uh, memories, any incidents, any particular experiences that in that now in retrospect, uh, you could say, prefigured or were harbingers for the kind of work that you have done in this book, Symbolism? I think I could answer that by a certain period in my life. Uh, not in my early childhood, but more or less around uh, my in my 20s. And uh, at that time, I went through a period of complete uh, uh, dysfunction, almost, you might say. I, I had uh, my first marriage broke up. I was supposed to uh, uh, become a professor somewhere. That was my goal. And that didn't work out. And I ended up uh, becoming a postman for a while after my master's degree. And this was a very uh, uh, difficult moment for me. And I was suffering greatly at that time. And what happened is that there was something very deep suffering touched something in me that was a complete joy. It was a... I don't know how to explain it, but there was something that just exploded in me almost and made a great joy. And I started to write about this. And I found at that moment 
that I didn't have to think to write. I just, things would come to me and I would just write a whole paragraph like that without any, uh, any thought about it. And this amazed me because before that time, I was just, uh, I was uh, sort of just going along a path that you're supposed to go along, you know, and uh, I didn't, I wasn't thinking at all about my future. I was just following what I was, quote, supposed to do. And this just changed everything for me. And so I began to question myself, began to question who I was, uh, what I was doing, why I act like I do in this sort of thing. And this questioning hasn't stopped since, actually. I don't know if this is what you meant. Uh, this is what your questioning had to do with, but uh, that's what came to mind when you asked me the question. So, so, so you ask if uh, um, this is what we were looking for, and it's perfectly uh, within the bounds of uh, what the mystical positivist is about, which is to mm-hmm. um, uh, investigate sorts of things that are not necessarily understood to be um, within the material world um, as uh, is commonly understood. Yeah, so, and, and, and I'd like to kind of build on your what you described and ask if uh, from, from that questioning that you described and that ongoing uh, examination of what what your life was about did you find your way into any formal forms of uh, either spiritual inquiry or uh, uh, practice or practical work not at that time no i was a very book person and i would always go to books and uh it, i it just never entered my mind to i've always been a very sort of a misanthrope i never joined things you know and so I just I was on my own and I would go to books and I would read books and uh, I think at that time I was uh, influenced by Nietzsche a lot at that time I felt I needed his strength you know this uh, the man who uh, I forget the the term he used maybe you can give it to me but it was the the man who had the strength to overcome all obstacles, you know, that's what I needed. And so uh, I went to Nietzsche and also was very uh, influenced by Henry Miller also Mm. at the time. Uh, uh, Actually, I just published uh, two books about that period that I wrote 40 or 50 years ago. Mm. And I decided I wanted to get rid of my past, so I wanted to publish it and get rid of it. So I published these two books. They're, the one is on Amazon. You can see if you look at it. It's called Day One, which really had to do with that period I just mentioned. And then there's another one is just coming out. It's called uh, a, a Serious Delirium, which is my uh, stories about my time as a hippie. Uh, I, I'm old enough to have lived through all that. And uh, these stories uh, have another meaning behind them, which I talk about in the in the stories, too. So uh, and so if that really interests you, you could look at them to see where what I where my mind was at that time. Uh, cause, Got it. 
So was the uh, hippie phase that you described something that came after this uh, uh, seminal yeah, experience? Yeah, it, it was just after that. It was after that. I just, you know, I sort of exploded in every way. You know, I went, you know, I just did everything I felt I wanted to do. And I did it uh, because I, having these experiences opened something up in me. And I decided to try to open up in life as well. And so... Uh, Basically, that's that's yeah. So so having uh, changed many of the things, many of the ways you lived your life, um, and having looked at books, uh, for for example, Henry Miller you mentioned, and others, did you um, continue to find? I don't know if solace is the right word, but but find anything in the realm of books that continue to feed you. Well, the one thing that really changed my thinking apparatus was when I be, this was when I came to Europe and I was introduced to uh, the work of René Guénon. You know him? A little bit. I haven't read him, but uh, actually, okay, I, fa- um, I, fa- I found I found the quotes. Speak of him. Yeah, the quotes you have in symbolism were actually quite evocative. Okay, so when I started, it was, this was like my road uh, to Damascus. You know, when I read him, everything that I felt that I had known about history, life, uh, civilization was completely turned around by reading him. I felt he had a certain authority as I was reading him. And I would read his books. I would tell my wife, at the, my second wife at the time, that I'm going up, I'm writing, you know. But I wasn't writing. I was reading Yanon and taking notes. I practically copied his whole books. It was just so important to me what he was saying. And uh, and so, Rene, you ask who... Uh, and Rene Ganon really was somebody who changed my my way of thinking, my my perception intellectually of the well, world. Perhaps, perhaps uh, this would be a good way into uh, beginning the discussion of your book Symbolism, because you certainly um, quote Ganon a, a considerable amount, mm-hmm. and um, and perhaps you can from from the, what impressed you about his work, you can uh, take take us and listeners into how you came to write the book Symbolism. Well, I came to write the book. It's, it wasn't written in, in one shot. It was written over about 20 years, actually, because mm-hmm. I had written uh, different parts of it were written uh, because I wanted to try to express in my own words these these ideas that I uh, I have developed for myself, and uh, so and then towards the end, when I the first part the the, the modern thought was a lot of that, but the, when I got to Egypt. Why I I was interested in Egypt is a whole other question. And 
I have to tell you the story of why I was interested in Egypt, because that will give you an idea of why I wrote the book. Because the first time I went to Egypt, I went to the, uh, I think I mentioned this in the book, actually, about going to the uh, tomb of Nefertari, who was the wife of Ramses II. And when I went in there, I think this was the first tomb that I was I saw. And the beauty of that was incredible. They had just finished restoring it. I mean, not, not by changing anything, but by making it cleaner. And it was just so stark with the white background and the symbols of the characters and everything. And but what, what I felt and which I did mention in the book was that I, it wasn't the beauty so much that, that struck me, was that the message that was in there, that they were trying, or whoever created the, the symbols in that and the hieroglyphs around it, there was, a, I felt that there was a message being sent. I really felt that somewhere deep in me, that there was something that was trying to be said and that the beauty was simply a reflection of the message. And it was not put there to be beautiful at all. And so when I got back, and I, I, that image of that place stuck in me so strongly that when I got back to, I was living in Paris then, I took a course in hieroglyphs so I could figure out what that message was. And I, I spent three years studying the hieroglyphs at this Institute Chaos in Paris and uh, to, to try to decipher the message. And the message in there and in all the documents of, uh, that come, that's come down to us from ancient Egypt are saying the same thing. It's what I say in the book that they're, there was a, a spiritual project in in ancient Egypt, and that everything was based on that spiritual project. And uh, so that's I became so in, infused with Egypt that I decided to put those two together: the, my in, my intellectual endeavors before and my new interest in Egypt. And I decided to write a book that way and to put to, to put the two together. And to and to contrast the two a lot to talk about modern thought as uh, as a as a uh, what's the word I'm thinking of as a decline from yeah. ancient Egypt. There's a there's a better word, but I didn't come to mind. But anyway, yeah. So so uh, that that's a good gateway into the uh, talking about the book because the way that you structured the book the. And it makes sense in terms of what you're saying. There, there's a, a discussion of modern thought, and then there's a discussion of ancient Egypt, and there's a, mm -hmm. in, a in a sense, a contrast. Although I would say that um, uh, uh, what you characterize as modern thought is interesting because there is the aspect that you are just alluded to, which is um, uh, representations of modern thought as we see and as it's reflected in things like scientism and the technological age mm -hmm. represent a if not a degeneration a loss of uh, uh, of a completeness that might be reflected in thought at other times 
<clears throat> but you also, by uh, uh, quoting folks like Gidon and uh, uh, Kamara Swami, uh, Swami uh, you're also talking about modern thought in a much different context. And so there's an understanding of modern thought that comes forth, which uh, is reflected in both those philosophical writings. Um, it, it resonated with our own background in the Gurdjieff work and the fourth way work, because it's a very similar cosmological model that uh, is being described there. So I wanted to just start with some of the elements that you pull out and, and, um, the modern thought that you describe, um, in part, is is a a holistic view of the universe, or the uh, the the view of the universe as uh, a living being, and mm -hmm. and and that that life is reflected at different scales of uh, manifestation. So maybe we could start there with just the kind of the big picture of how you're describing cosmos in that book. That's a big question. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's a macro question. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what I think I was trying to define throughout the book, actually, was the idea of modern science is great as far as it goes, but it's always on one level. It's only science as it is can only be uh, looked at on the on what can be measured. You know, science is only if it's not measured, it's not science. That's that's the way it is in our modern world. And what I was trying to show was that there are levels, that, that there this hierarchical, this hierarchical um, vision or reality of of the universe has completely lost in in modern thought, except for those. Few people like Kumaraswamy, Genon, and Shuon, and people like that—they they have, they have come back to that. But and so it's what interested me a lot was this idea that there are levels—the idea of levels of being, levels of consciousness, levels of—and that uh, modern science is is not, I have nothing against modern science; it's great. On that level, I, I'm interested in modern science. I, I have a, I get a magazine on, on on science every every month, and I read it cover to cover because it interests me. But I always have in the back of my mind that that is only this level of of uh, this level of the plane of the earth, if you like, and that the higher levels of consciousness. Have nothing to do with our of the our modern civilization, basically. Well, that's a there's an interesting question I have in there because we have um, some friends who um, have, have done a lot of work around uh, uh, describing the uh, the the Gurdjieff cosmology. The uh, I think the uh, technical term is the Trogolado egocrat and the levels within levels within levels of uh, manifestation. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, one of our friends would assert that uh, uh, even the most refined levels of uh, uh, manifestation are measurable in some sense. And 
so the question I, I guess I have is, you know, do you, is the issue of science uh, not being able to recognize uh, realms of existence beyond, let's say, the strictly physical, a a problem of scope, or is it a problem of uh, that the tools actually uh, uh, don't really allow you to ask those kinds of questions that you cannot measure? Uh, let us say uh, uh, the subtleties of uh, an expression or an, a manifestation of consciousness. Uh, I think am I breaking up again? No, no, no. We, can, we can hear you. Hello, can you're you fine. Uh oh, we can hear you just fine. I think I broke up again. Can you hear us? Okay, now I can. Yeah. Okay. 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 Um, well, I, I can't imagine, I would like to hear how, how, how somebody could me- measure consciousness. I, I, I would like, can you go into a little bit about what this person was saying, how he could mention finer uh, levels of consciousness? Well, I'm not sure that I, we get to, into the practical uh, uh, demonstration of that in our, in our conversations with our friend, except that um, uh, the... I, I know that in some scientific realms, there are, there's at least through statistical tools the ability to demonstrate the occurrence of phenomena that defy the physical model. For instance, uh, evidence of telepathy or evidence of psychokinesis can be demonstrated even at statistical levels that are uh, strong by the normal tools of science, and yet most conventional science completely ignores those results or, you know, almost by mm-hmm. religious edict do not consider those results as uh, something as a line of question. So there is a degree to which subtle and a causal manifestations of mind may be reflected in experiments that we can um, run even in, even with conventional tools of science. I, well, I I don't I can't imagine that really because uh, just from my own experience I mean I've I've had flashes of shall we say different levels of consciousness maybe just flashes and there's no way that I could explain that to anybody um, and I can't imagine how anybody could have the idea that that could be measured when it's a question of your consciousness. How do you measure consciousness? That's an, if you have a level, if you're going to a level where Gurdjieff, he talks about being a witness or being a, I mean, I think there are certain things that you can't measure, that you can't, uh, that you can't even, you can't explain in words. So I don't see how you can measure something you can't even explain, something that is a direct experience. For example, I mentioned it in the book. How can you explain to somebody the color red? Right. How can you explain the color red? All you can do is, uh, have, in your mind, you know what red is by your perception in your own mind, but you can't explain that perception to anybody because it's a direct experience. Consciousness is the same thing. It's a direct experience that you cannot explain. You can't talk about consciousness because there's nothing to say. It's in the, when it's a direct experience. So, I, th- I think that's fair. 
<clears throat> and that echoes some of the uh, philosophical arguments about the irreducibility of consciousness to a functional description that mm-hmm. that the experience of red no matter how you arrange your models whether it's uh, hydrogens or whether it's neurons uh mm-hmm. no matter how you arrange it you can't go from the exteriorization of that to the interiorization which is the subjective reality of the experience yeah and I, I think that's fair. And that that kind of gets to this other distinction that you draw in the uh, early part of the book about tribal man versus modern man. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see that um, distinction in terms of ways of relating to one's reality. Well, it's the same thing with tribal man or ancient Egypt in the, in the sense that there is no, uh, a person does not feel himself as an individual like we do. We're all individuals and our mindset is individual. I do this. I do that. I'm talking with you now. I, this, I, that. A tribal man, he didn't have this feeling of being uh, an individual. It's from, this is my take on what I, I, I haven't visited tribal men, so I can't, uh, I'm talking about what, what I've read about. Okay. So, and from what I understand, though, there is no feeling of individuality that a, a, a person in a tribe or a person in ancient Egypt does not have this feeling that he is an individual person who can make choices. That he has, he is part of a community. That he's he's like a a cell in a, in a in an organ. The organ makes him move. It's the community that makes him move. He doesn't have this feeling that ha- he has a mental obligation to think for himself. And like we do, we all do. We all. Why are we here talking? Because we're. And we have this mental obligation to explain what we think, what we feel, and so forth. I don't think a tribal man or the people of ancient Egypt had that. Ancient Egypt, they had, through their symbols, they created a way of uh, a way of being for everyone, and it was and it was reinforced all the time by their holidays, their festivals, their rights there and so forth and uh, I think if if I'm not sure what the question was there but I think that that is the main uh, uh, the great difference between us as individuals and a, a tribal man living in a community which decides everything he's that apart from the community he doesn't exist basically for himself so, um, so perhaps then you could you could uh, uh, define wh- um, how you understand symbols as they were used in Egypt, because that seems to be the the core mm-hmm. of your the argument in your book. But uh, uh, perhaps you could help listeners begin to grasp what it is that you're arguing for. Well, I think. A sim- first of all, what is a symbol? First of all, I think if we have to talk about that, because 
a symbol is, is not a sign. It's not that this symbol means this. I think I said that very clearly uh, in the book that it's not like a street sign, you know, where it says stop. That means you got to stop. It has nothing to do with that. A symbol has to do with a way of being and that it, it can only have a relation to someone who has an who is completely integrated into the civilization that gave that symbol. Because if you take a symbol of a, a god in Egypt, which I call a netter, as you saw in the book, because God, we have all these connotations around the word God that I just don't like at all. And uh, so a, a netter, which is a cosmic principle, as far as I could, I have understood. And a symbol can only have a meaning in terms of the whole uh, in terms of the whole uh, conception that of the civilization, it's like I, I made this comparison into a, as a for a hologram, for example, a hologram. Every part of a hologram in modern. That's why I talked about it. I even said that every part of a hologram, the whole is in the part. And it's the same thing in every symbol in Egypt. The whole is in every symbol of the whole civilization. That's why you can never say that this symbol means this or that. It has to do with the whole symbolism of ancient Egypt. And if, if you take the, the, the Netter Horus, for example, well, if you don't know the whole story of, of all the myths related to Horus, it's not going to mean anything to you. And so... A symbol in a traditional civilization only has meaning for those in that civilization because it's, it's their whole being has to do with the, with the, the whole, the whole of the civilization and the symbolism in which this was created. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but, uh, well, you, you you are uh, it it, um, but then uh, the so there's a couple questions about that. You know, for someone in a civilization that is connected to the the let's say the organic whole of the symbol, how does the symbol function? What does it what does it do for someone? Because our modern notions of symbolism are are fairly uh referential like um uh, yeah. you mentioned a stop sign i might i might read a poem and it 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 gives me a metaphor which uh i can understand as being a reflection or a poetic reflection of something else but mm -hmm. so there's always a sense of reference but uh it, today symbolism is a little bit like uh uh unpacking a code or, you know, uh, uh, solving a, a puzzle as opposed to something more transformational. And you you speak of, in the book, you speak of symbols as having a more active function on uh, one psyche. Maybe you could speak a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, but that's, that's just the point. It's because in our society, 
you you could you could take a symbol from Egypt and show it to somebody. It's not going to mean, and it's not going to have any effect at all, except maybe uh, an intellectual uh, talking about the uh, what the symbol means. But it's not going to have a transformational effect because it's not part of the civilization in which it was created. So I think a real symbol. Say you take a symbol of uh, I mentioned in the book, uh, the symbol of Atum. He was the original creator. Now, if you sh- if if this symbol is is put in a right of creation, a certain R I T E, and if this is used in a right, then this can be. And all the symbols in ancient Egypt were basically used uh, in terms of a ritual. Uh, their ritual symbolisms. And so I think that uh, if in order for the symbol to have a transformational effect, it has to be used in a context in which the right is affecting the person. And so it, it cannot be just something you, you you open up a book and look at it and say, ah, I'm transformed. No, it's not. It's not like that. It has to be used in a certain context. Uh, that's how I think it is. And it, and if one is, like I say, a, a symbol can only have an effect at the level of the person experiencing it. So if if a person isn't at that level, he's not going to be affected by it. So if a symbol has to do with the, uh, a, a movement in consciousness, if that person cannot understand the symbol, it means he's not at that point where it ha- will have an effect on him. That's how I look at it. Anyway. So, so for a symbol to have a transformational potential, then it, it has to exist in a sense at the uh, edges of where the person's uh, uh, current state of consciousness uh, can function so that the symbol can, in that case, be a gateway to an opening of consciousness. Yes, I think so. I think that's absolutely true. And in our civilization, there's, there's, where is it? I mean, if you look at the the cross, I I mentioned the, the symbolism of the cross in Christianity. There's a profound symbolism in that, of, of, of the cross. But you go to church, uh, you go to a church there that isn't 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 it's not there it's not explained it's not it's not given to anybody there's more there's sentimental singing you know and it's not going to uh transform anybody so uh, so if if i'm hearing you right um then um a symbol is contextualized in part, at least, by a uh, ritual enactment that assumes Uh a symbol is correct. You you cut out there for me. So so I'm saying that the, um, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, Mm -hmm. then what you're saying is that a symbol in the overall cultural context within which it was produced and used. Nevertheless, also that, or that part of that context is a ritual expression or enactment Mm -hmm. that can 
operate on individuals within the culture, but not all individuals, mm -hmm. just those who may be on the, on the edge of being able to appreciate how the symbol can affect their mm -hmm. level of consciousness. Is that right? I think that's more or less, yes. I'm not sure what you mean by the edge, but uh, what did you mean on the edge? Well, you, we, Stuart, and, Stuart and you were just discussing, uh, as I understood it, that there, um, it's, it's not that people are frozen at a level of consciousness if they're going to um, move to a newer level of consciousness, mm -hmm. there has to be a some some kind of uh, periphery or boundary, as it were. Uh, okay, I see what you mean. And and a, a real symbol, I think, can help a person expand that boundary. That's what I. That's what yeah. right. That's what I was un, un asking. Is is your understanding? Yes. Well, yes, and uh, and that is a. Uh, but again, it has to be used in a ritual context. So maybe, maybe the uh, uh, an analogy that just came to me as we're talking about this is the symbol as a catalyst. To use a chemical metaphor, a catalyst is a, a right. substance or a substrate that is unchanged in the reaction, but the react is a necessary condition for the reactants to actually undergo a transformation. So the rich, the symbol itself can be the catalyst, but the ritual activity, the state of the initiate, uh, the conditions and the people around are all necessary uh, uh, reactants to cause a transformation. And the symbol is a necessary part of that, but the symbol remains unchanged in that process. Right. But uh, the main transformation has to come from the person himself developing his consciousness. It's not the symbol is going to create and uh, the consciousness. He has to already be there. Right. And the symbol can confirm more or less what his understanding already is. Right. I think the what's interesting about this, and this, this reflects back to some conversations we've had with friends uh, about the necessity of a certain kind of symbolic uh, structure or ladder of... Uh, of a higher higher existence because as one because the symbol is a support as one develops one's consciousness and without that uh symbolic structure in place uh it doesn't the transformation even one's personal efforts at transformation aren't necessarily uh uh complete without the support of the symbolic structure. But the symbolic structure in and of itself, without that transformation, doesn't give you anything. Exactly. But but it's a, uh, again, again, you know, I use the term, it's a substrate against which our transfer, you know, our personal efforts can uh, result in a uh, transformed state of being. Yes, I think that you take, for example, Gurdjieff's ray of creation. Now, that's a symbol, you know, but... It helps. That helps because it shows levels. It shows hierarchy and it shows that there is a road to be taken. And so it, 
a symbol gives one hope as well, because it shows that there, there is a way. If one understands the symbol, you know, that's a whole other story. But Well, there's, a, there's an element also, you know, the sense of hope that you describe is also reflected in the word mystery. So some, some symbols present as a mystery because we don't understand yes. cognitively, but yeah. that mystery uh, creates a sort of magnetism uh, toward which we're attracted. Exactly, but and it's also that uh, um, I had this thought, and now it just went away. Um, anyway, go on. I'm sorry, I had a thought that was just disappeared like that. They all do ultimately. <laughs> yes, thank God. <laughs> so, uh, one thing I wanted to ask because in in the one section in the book you describe when you're talking about consciousness, you have an interesting diagram in which you describe uh, three stages of consciousness. Right. And, um, uh, the first stage is uh, what you, we might configure as ordinary or identified consciousness, where whatever capacity we have for uh, observing ourselves or being present to ourselves is highly identified with uh, the functional aspects of our you know, our feelings, our body sensations, uh, even the, the formatory thoughts that we have. Mm-hmm. And, th- and so there's very little separation. And in that place, the world that we live in is an imaginary world that's uh, configured by our perceptions or our thoughts about things. Mm-hmm. So that's stage one. And then stage two, there's this, through the uh, uh, development of attention, there's a separation where the observer function is able to be present in separation from the functional elements mm-hmm. of our uh, uh, organism and be present to their functioning. And in that process, the um, uh, imaginary world sort of collapses because it's, a, it's, it's mm-hmm. seen or understood as the illusory nature that it is. But but then there's a third stage in which the observer uh, uh, and the function seem to be integrated, and you call that a kind of a, a state of self-consciousness in which there's a <laughs> organic, uh, you know, we're aware of things as they arise, but we also have a living context within which those things occur so that we are a self-integrated or self uh, self-conscious being. Well, that is exactly... Uh, what I was going to say, because it brought back the memory of what I was going to say before, but as what is related to that is that a symbol uh, can only relate to one's own experience. It's a, you cannot think about a symbol; as it only has to it has to relate to one's own inner experience. And I re, I, I say inner experience. And when you're talking about that third stage. For me, that means that you're, everything happens in one's life or in, in one's interaction with uh, one's life and with people, with the, happens on its own. Because, I, as Gurdjieff says, we're, we're automatons. And that was looked on as something derogatory. But it's an actual fact. We are, we are automatons, and if we accept that, and that becomes, and we accept that we are automatons, and that becomes integrated into our being. 
then we can uh, our consciousness can be free from from our automaton. And I, I've been I've been just reading. Uh, you know you know of Nisargadatta. Mm-hmm. I've, I've just been reading him. A friend of mine introduced me to him, and he talks about these this that we are not our our body, we are not our emotions, we are not our mental uh, thinking apparatus, and if not, what are we? Because those are not us; that they just happen. We think, we feel, we move completely automatically. So if we can really accept that and incarnate that, incarnate that into our being, then we are free from that. We can be free from that. And we can be free from the automaton. But, of course, that's a, a lot of work. It's, it's easy to say, of course. Well, it's, it's interesting um... Because the that freedom, you know, it's certainly in the Gurdjieff work. There's confusion around and uh, the what it means to do, and certainly in an automatic state, one can't do. The question is: uh, is doing even something that uh, we have access to, or is doing just happen uh, uh, according to forces uh, uh, beyond our? Uh, Either comprehension or our, our our willful participation with. Yeah, I I really don't think we do at all. Things happen. That's it. Things happen, and but if our attention is there and, and if our presence is there, we can watch that. That's as far as it goes. I think uh, basically, and. Uh, because I really think after a certain amount of years in life, our body, our emotions, our, our thought knows what to do. We don't have to. We have this feeling of, of we always have to uh, make choices and think about it. But we don't have to. We can just go on. You know, I think I really think that, that I'm not saying I'm capable of that. But I think that is that is a goal to which one should uh, go to is is to have this feeling that, well, I mean, maybe that's not the right word, feeling. I just said we shouldn't. <laughs> but anyway, you know what I mean. Uh, it's just a question of allowing oneself to be, just be, you know. It's uh, uh, And without trying to control, without trying to to make decisions all the time, let things happen. And consciousness would be when that, automaton becomes integrated in the third stage into one's being and is not controlling oneself. Right. I don't know if I'm making sense. or no, not, but. You're making sense. I'm, I'm just uh, reflecting on, um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, in some of the psychological commentaries, uh, uh, Morris Nichol writes, uh, there's the notion that the, this formatory consciousness, uh, you know, in, in ordinary consciousness is active and uh, our, our essence or our sort of, you might say, our, yes. subje- our subjective reality is passive. But in, the, in a transformed state, the, this formatory personality can become passive and the, mm-hmm. the uh, essence or the, you know, our 
subjective, our, 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 our spiritual reality becomes active. Mm-hmm. That now, sounds what, correct. <laughs> now, what that, what that means in terms of functioning is, is a kind of an interesting question because to suggest that the essence is active is, um, suggests that in some ways, uh, we may not do in the, in the ordinary sense, but the, our state of being may attract our life. So that well, what yeah. the currents of life that flow around us would be different by virtue of holding a different state of being. Uh, yeah. I think that's what we're talking about in the levels here. It's another level of being. If, if your mental apparatus is, is passive and, and you're up here watching it, that's a different state. It's an it's a different level. It's a and this hierarchy this hierarchy is what is necessary. And if we don't have that feeling of a hierarchy, we get in, identified with all the things on our level of life. Uh, like science is great, but if you feel that uh, if if only we could just do this and learn this and do this, then everything will be great. You know, in a few years, and we'll get rid of the pandemic, and everything will be great. And it's that I, it's that feeling that that we've lost is that we can be higher than that. You know, it's just there's no idea of levels in our society. I think that's the that's the problem. Got it. So um, you're you've been speaking to the fact that uh, you're um, pointing towards the importance of hierarchy, but. There are other uh, malevolent um, aspects of hierarchy in the sense that uh, people end up using other people for um, for their own mundane gains, even yeah, um, true. foolish. So, so I'm wondering, I'm I'm wondering how you understand in Egypt and perhaps elsewhere. Um, ancient Egypt, obviously, uh, um, how that sort of distinction um, um, is maintained. I mean, you can even apply it to contemporary um, spiritual practitioners, right, who um, can fool themselves, perhaps, about the level of being that they are uh, capable capable of attaining, and um, perhaps mistakenly assume that they know something more, or understand something more, or have a right to um, impose on others that um, aspect of hierarchy that actually has nothing to do with the kind of hierarchy that you wish to speak about in your book. Mm -hmm. Well, that hierarchy in ancient Egypt, for example, there was the idea of Maat, you know, M-A-A-T. And that was one of the axioms of a traditional civilization is that everything has to be in its right place, including Mm -hmm. from the cosmos to the society in which one is living. So you are born in a in a you are born and your your parents are in this place and you are in the same place. And 
So there is no conception, as we said before, of an individual who has to find on his own some other some uh, something else. He is in his place, the right place, because he comes from a society and a family that has its place in in that society, and he is part of that family, and so he's part of that society. And the idea of being other than what he is doesn't doesn't arise. But in our civilization, everybody's trying to be, you know, is trying to rise and be and and screw the other guy. And so I'm not saying everybody, but uh, it that so our society is is almost hopeless in that sense. There's nothing we can do about it. And, uh, you know, if you belong to a certain community, however, that is going against the stream, then that can that can have an effect also on the on the individual uh, you have the monasteries for example or gurdjieff groups things like that and you there where there isn't that idea of an individual so much the idea of an individual or the primacy of the individual in the ordinary sense yeah, yeah right I mean, as you as you say, there's a kind of there's a individuality, or maybe the right word is subjectivity, or a uh, a, a, a beingness that is senior to the functional or the formatory aspects of our individuality, right? I mean, this gets very confusing because, um, in one sense, in spiritual practice, one is trying to attain to true individuality as opposed to the false individuality that our ordinary lives present. Yeah, I see. Yeah, the two words individuality has two different meanings. Absolutely. Yes. But but I mean, to Rob's point, I I, I guess I would put it a little differently. I mean, not differently, but just elaborate on what he's saying is that um, in a society like ancient Egypt, just because you have a group of people you know, it it, 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 to me, at least, it seems naive to assume that everybody is operating at a, uh, a transformed level of consciousness. Well, of course not. Yeah. So you have a, you have a system, and you probably have some distribution of uh, people who are operating at a higher level of consciousness, but the most people are operating at, uh, of course. Uh, at a level of consciousness that isn't transformed in the sense that we're describing. So even though the cultural context is different and the idea that everyone has a place and that there is, you know, that individuals don't necessarily see their, they don't measure themselves by how far they rise in the hierarchy, there's still a kind of identified existence that uh, ordinary people would have in that, uh, that world. And in that way, power games and control of others and things like that uh, potentially can assert themselves just like they assert themselves in other aspects. I'm sure they do. But on the other hand, you take Mm -hmm. the civilization of ancient Egypt was for 3,000 years, it had the same cultural symbols. Everything was the same for 3,000 years. There weren't major revolutions. There was... was, 
upheavals. It was two two periods where there were complete upheavals, but you 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 see the same basic civilization going on for uh, three thousand years because there was a the idea is that there is one universal. Uh, uh, way of being and that it all goes back and it's very interesting because there are two um, two ideas of time in ancient Egypt there is the idea of cyclical time I don't know if you remember this in the book but there yeah. was, there's the cyclical time where everything comes back around it comes back around. It comes back around. And based on the idea of the Nile flood, every year it comes. The Nile floods and creates the 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 experience so that plants can grow each year. And there is the sun every day goes around in its cycle. But there's also this other uh, idea of time called jet which is that there is only one time and it's the same from the very beginning, which is a symbol, this idea of the, the first time and that this is always the eternal present. And in, in every real religion, this is always exists, this idea of this eternal present. And I think that is what we're trying to find in a, in a spiritual project, any spiritual project. And I think that's what was in ancient Egypt. I think that was their project was to what, what happened at the beginning of creation is happening still. That, mm. that, that the initial creation is happening now. And uh, we just have to somehow realize that within ourselves, you know, that's, and maybe that doesn't make much sense to somebody, but uh, I understand what I'm trying to say, but because I've been imbued with this Egyptian culture, you know, so. Well, I, I, it, does, it does make sense uh, in the in the context of if, if, if we understand Jet as uh, the eternal now mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we ex- accept that linkage, then then it certainly makes sense that spiritual practice often you know configures itself or points to the attainment of of being present now because mm-hmm. past and future are constructions you know that you know, mm-hmm. to say kind of uh, are part of this cyclic nature of uh time so yes so what you're saying makes sense in a, a larger spiritual sense are you gonna yeah. Okay. But uh, I can go on. Yeah, please. And, uh, they uh, talking about Nizargadatta. Like he said, uh, we're not our body, emotions, and, and 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 body and mind. He said, what we are is this eternal consciousness. And I think that's what he he was getting to. It was what we were just talking about. This. It, eternal present that we that our real nature is only to be part of this eternal consciousness that is there always because it was always there and it was always it's there now as in the past and i think that's what he was getting to that's what impressed me so much about what he was saying that 
if we're not this body and we're not this mind and, and this in these emotions that we feel, then we have to we, we are something else. And it's this eternal consciousness that was there from the beginning and is here still. And I just made that connection between him and, and what we were talking about in ancient Egypt. So So would you would you understand that as Atom in the uh, ancient Egypt? The god or the netter Atom? Ah uh, we uh, well, yes. Uh, well, he was the original creator who is still functioning. Yes, uh, absolutely. It, it, it was um, not lost on me that the uh, in in uh, uh, the uh, Vedic traditions that uh, uh, Atman is the name. It's uh, the, mm-hmm. the consonant. Yeah, Atman, Ata, Atman. Yes. Well, yeah. Uh, which is, I don't which know is, You take a. You have to. You have to talk to a linguist to yeah. find. Well, I think they're they're very different languages. Yeah. So, so speaking more, you know, I guess um, we were talking a little bit about this um, for an Egyptian, an ordinary Egyptian in a uh, uh, in their world that the. They may have a personal experience, but they didn't really question their you, culturally. It wasn't normal to question your role or to be, you know, to basically. That's, uh, that's my impression. Yeah, you you were part of your community. So that then I I think the question I have because you speak to this a little bit about uh, uh, in your section on tribal man that. Even in that place, you know, it's not necessarily idyllic. There's still a uh, identified functioning of of life because one's awareness is identified with the functioning of one's body, and uh, one's experience is uh, kind of, you know, as we said, the the uh, personality is still active. <laughs> so does um, that separation we were describing was stage two, where the observer begins to separate itself from the functioning. Uh, and, and our world becomes transformed. Do you see that that is being um, uh, elicited by rites of initiation in these societies? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I mentioned that uh, also in the book that the persons, I guess my rite of initiation is what I was talking about at the beginning. It wasn't done by the society. It happened to be done by because of my situation. You know what I'm talking about when I mentioned at the beginning yeah. why I became interested in, in spiritual things. And so uh, the rite of initiation completely destroyed one's personality as it was to give them that other road to be a witness of oneself. Uh, you know, I, I haven't studied that so much that I can talk about it in those terms, but uh, the rite of initiation from what I have understood was really they completely destroyed one's one's personality that completely gave them a new name uh gave them spiritual lessons and so forth uh from the elders and and this sort of thing put them on a whole other path uh, of their life uh in, inside not not outwardly but inside they had to something was broken and something had to it was in the process then of being recreated uh that's how i how i look at that and i think people who 
And so they went through incredible suffering. Uh, and I think if you don't suffer, you're not going to change anything in oneself. So uh, I think what I went through at, the, at that time I was mentioning, I went through incredible suffering at that time, in inner suffering, not physical suffering. And uh, that led me to eventually to the Gurdjieff work. Yeah. And, and so that it's interesting because I think one of the critiques of modern society is that we, we really don't have well-established uh, uh, modalities of initiation for younger people, even, even to go from childhood to adulthood. Exactly. I, I always said, I, I always thought that one should not have done away with the draft only for the reason to get people away from their civil, their their culture as a young as a youngster and go into something else and see all these different people and so forth. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, it doesn't it? Uh, it doesn't have to be a, a draft to the military. It could be a draft. No, it could be some, a draft. Yeah. Some sort of form of public service, but yeah, but, exactly. the, the, but the function is to pull people out of their comfortable context and put exactly. them into a, a context where they're receiving impressions that challenge their mm -hmm. psychology. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I'm going to uh, quote, quote you from the book here on page uh, 54. Oh, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's what we're doing here. So you, you write, According to Guénon, rather than, the, rather than the continual progress of the world that the material results of science would have us believe is the case, we are, in fact, very far into the last of the four ages, the Hindu Kali Yuga, or its equivalent in the West, the Age of Iron. That is to say, we are near the end of a cycle and the beginning of another. And the fact that we are at the end of the last age means that we are at the farthest point from the spiritual principles of the beginning, and in general, totally immersed in the material, physical world. So um, uh, that has um, that's part of your general thesis that that in fact. Um, And in light of what you were just saying a moment ago about uh, uh, that suffering is needed, apparently this would um, this view would support the idea that the physical suffering <clears throat> that the world is undergoing is part of this particular view, cyclical view of time. Is that correct? I think that sounds. Uh, I, I've made that connection myself. Why is why is this pandemic happening now? Uh, that uh, we've come, and it seems to me right now our society is in a, a complete state of of disintegration uh, everywhere, and uh, there's no, as Ganon says often, there's no principles behind our civilization anymore. Even the democracy which we hold held so dear is coming under attack now. Uh, so uh, I think we are at the end of a cycle and that uh, but because we are at the end of this cycle, there are open to something new. 
And why did Gurdjieff come at this time? Why did uh, René Guénon write that? Why, you know, it's uh, there's something happening now, I, th- I feel, and that uh, we're, we're in, a, in, a, in a very transformative time. Got it. Thank you. Oh, there's there. Uh, we were talking with some friends the other day about the uh, Gurdjieff principle of solio enuncius, which is this uh, strifeful time, which uh, in can be a very potent time for spiritual transformation for those who can use the uh, discord to their advantage. But for most mm-hmm. people, it just uh, expresses in greater anxieties and desires for uh, conflict and war and uh, uh, mm-hmm. friction. So it certainly does feel like this time that uh, it's a time of friction where a lot of the the satisfaction with the traditional answers have fallen away and uh, people seem to be groping for some sort of meaning, but it's going in all sorts of different directions because yeah. there's no, our institutions don't offer the kind of magnetism necessary to keep people in alignment. Yeah, which which follows from what Guénon says. There are no principles behind the society, so anything is possible. There are no principles. There's no there's no rituals really, except Thanksgiving maybe to celebrate the the massacre of the Indians. Apart from that, you know, uh, there are really no principles uh, leading to a higher level. Yeah, so it's interesting that then if we reflect back on this this thesis on. Uh, ancient Egypt, you mentioned that for a period of about 3,000 years, the culture was largely intact. I mean, there was there was evolution and differences and things like that, but the writing system more or less remained the same. Not entirely. I think, I think in later... Towards the end, it changed. Towards yeah. the end, it changed. But, but that... And, you describe that the function of the the priestly class, you know, although individual transformation may have been a part of this, particularly for initiates, that the function of the priestly class was a kind of psychic maintenance function, that they, that they were reifying, imbuing the statues, the symbols, the structures with a vital energy in the... Uh, uh, ritual enactments and that, that that energy was more or less maintaining the continuity of the civilization. And not only the civilization, it was uh, the temples in ancient Egypt were not like our temples. They didn't, we didn't go to a temple in ancient Egypt to worship a god or to ask for favors. The temples in ancient Egypt were there to help the functioning of the cosmos which means also the civilization, the society, and everything down under. And uh, so it had a completely different uh, concept of what it meant to come together in a, in a temple was to help the con- cosmos in its function, keeping it going in the way it's supposed to go, which is completely antithetical to our idea the modern idea of uh, change and progress and so forth. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think I, uh, uh, in the again, taking a leaf from the uh, cosmological system of the Gurdjieff work, there is a notion of 
our obligation to produce a certain kind of energy for the maintenance of the creation yeah. that our actions are not we're not just getting something for ourselves in isolation but to fully function we are uh emanating energy that is of use to the the greater cosmological functioning and instead so of our usual feeding of the moon is what uh, right yes and so so uh in this sense, then, your description of the, uh, your understanding of what uh, the Egyptian religious system was doing was effectively providing this kind of uh, energetic function. And mm -hmm. the reflection of that, then, is a relatively continuous flow of a, a, of a, of a culture for a period of time. And you know, even when there were uh, disruptive periods or uh, uh, invaders came in, they tended to quickly adopt the culture. I mean, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the, the, deci the decision makers change, but the but the cultures seem to uh, uh, absorb them rather than the other way around. Yeah, I think that's very true. So I'm curious uh, then, how do you understand the uh, you know why why the demise of Egypt then why. How did this come to an end, or why did this come to an end? Well, everything lives and dies, as they say. Uh, I, I, I can't answer that, really, but uh, uh, I think one of the main problems was that Greece uh, took over a lot of ancient Egypt, and uh, they, the Greeks, as you noticed in my book, uh, had a completely other view of reality. And that it was with the pre-Socratics that they began to analyze the world instead of instead of uh, becoming one with the world. Their idea was to stand apart and analyze it on a scientific way that we do now. And uh, the Greek influence, I think, was one of the major problems that uh, eventually ended with the Christianity banning the temples and so forth. In the end, but uh, it's uh, it's the the mental uh, idea that the Greeks brought that was the precursor to the destruction of of Egypt, I believe. And you you also I think suggest that uh, this mode of thinking, this analytic mode of thinking, uh, I guess functioned functioned for a while in the ancient world, but uh, I think you suggest that the Christian era and the medieval Europe was an exception mm -hmm. to this, where there was more of this uh, uh, synthetic thinking. Or, yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, and I guess you could argue that uh, cathedrals such as Chartres are examples that are uh, comparable to the functioning of the temples in Egypt. That they they yes, they, were, they were created with a purpose higher than just being a place for people to ask for things. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, it's, it's very mysterious how the cathedrals were built. You know, there's you talk about the Freemasons or the Campagnon, uh, and there's there's something very mysterious about how they were created. The uh, the cathedrals in ancient in, in medieval times. I, th I really think there must have been uh, some higher people who. who decided how they were going to be built and so forth. It, it wasn't an architect. Uh, it's like in ancient Egypt, uh, the uh, those who 
created the monuments, the statues, the thing. They didn't decide anything. They were told what to do by the priests. And because the priests were giving the message that, that these buildings and hieroglyphs and artworks were meant to, to be given out. And it was the, the priests who decided that. You never see anything signed in ancient Egypt. Yeah. Isn't one word uh, about somebody who made this or that, you know? So, so it's a completely different idea of what. Uh, I don't know how we got onto that, but then. Anyway. Well, we were talking about the uh, the synthetic mode of mind and the functioning of structures as a, uh, a, a an energetic maintenance of this kind of uh, sensibility. I do want to ask a question about Egypt, though, because uh, this, mm-hmm. this came up to me as I was reading the book. Um, the uh, Armana, Armana uh, revolution of Akhenaten is uh, often touted in the West as, oh, the beginning of Egypt discovers monotheism. And uh, Akhenaten defied the established priesthood and, and set up his own religion. I would guess... And tell me if I'm wrong, but I would guess from your book that 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 you would see that more as an aberration rather than a uh, a a moment of the uh, light suddenly shining in ancient Egypt. Is that no? On the contrary, I think ancient Egypt was always monotheistic, always monotheistic, because people say Egypt was polytheistic because of all the quote gods, but these were not. Gods, they were simply rep- symbols for cosmic functions. And it was only Atum who, who was the creator, the original creator. And that's the monotheistic view that I see of ancient Egypt. The rest, all that from then on, was simply the cosmological functions that were represented by these other, quote, gods. And so I think Egypt was always monotheistic. And I think you're right. I think uh, I think it was a political thing with uh, with uh, what he did in Amarna. It was just a political thing because the priests were taking too much control, according to what I've understood. The high priests were he was getting uh, too much uh, slack from the uh, high priests, and so he went. Well, I'm you <laughs> know. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to go over here and create my own religion, you know. And so uh, it's nothing to do with monotheism at all, I don't think. Right. But but also it's, uh, um, I think the more, more to the point I'm trying to get at is if, if you accept the premise that the priests are performing a maintenance function in terms of a certain kind of psychic energy to maintain mm-hmm. the, the civilization, then what does it mean when, a, a pharaoh, as it were, breaks rank and um, uh, undermines the established uh, uh, orders of maintenance and tries to establish something separate. Well, that didn't last very long because right after him, everything was brought back to what it was, you know. Right. So, so uh, it was an aberration. I, you said I thought it would be an aberration. You're right. It's just an aberration. Yeah, that, well, that. <laughs> so, so you you've been saying that the that the priests were um, um, responsible, as I understand it, for and they were what? Pardon? They that the priests were responsible 
for maintaining this um, civilization. So was it, was it, does that mean that the priests were a collective understand, maintaining and um, expressing the civilization was, um, uh, was some kind of collective agreement among well, the priesthood? I don't think I would put it like that because the priests in ancient Egypt were always considered as represented, representative, repre- representatives of the pharaoh. Mm-hmm. He was the only one who, had, who was the real priest because he was like a god himself. And so he could influence the higher forces. And the priests had a function. That's all. Their function was to keep the temples going. And it was, uh, it's just the way it was. It's, uh, that was part of their culture. The priests, in fact, you could become a priest uh, part-time if you wanted to, you, uh, or if you were forced to, whatever. You would go and, and be a function of a priest for a while, then go back to your life, and this sort of thing. It wasn't like, like our priests in, the, in, the, in a church here in our, in our civilization. It's nothing like that at all. It was just there were functionaries to keep the temple going, which kept the cosmos going, which kept Egypt going. And uh, that was their role. It it wasn't a collective agreement. It was part of the culture. That's just the way the culture uh, moved. I don't think that they didn't have, uh, I don't believe they had uh, uh, conferences where the priests gathered and decided things at all. It was just the way things were in the, you know. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'm, it's interesting as we talk about this, um, I'm thinking of an analogy to um, the Shinto religion <clears throat> or the Shinto practice. Uh, some people don't consider it a, a religion uh, in the way that we think of religion today. Uh, uh, we have a friend who's uh, uh, been exploring Shinto and a couple of the elements that I'm drawing an analogy here is one in Shinto, there's this notion of a kami, which I think a kami, a kami, K-A-M-I, kami. And that's a, okay. a, kam, a kami is like, uh, like you would call a netter. And okay. if, and if you ask, a kami like a communist, you know, no, no, it's a, it sounds the same. <laughs> but okay. so the, the kami, the, but the, uh, Shinto, the Shinto practitioners resist translations of kami as spirit or god. Okay. Uh, be, uh, but the best, the most lucid uh, interpretation or a definition of a kami I've heard is that that which gives you awe. A W E. So a kami, basically anything, a tree. There's a kami for a tree. There could be a kami for a sunset. Uh, anything that gives you awe induces that higher mm-hmm. emotional functioning is a kami. And mm-hmm. the, and I think about in Japan, the presence of the temples, the, uh, up until recently, at least for, you know, at least a, a thousand plus years, the temple structures had this performance, you know, people would all go to the temples. They, they, there was a, a practice. There was a re, uh, uh, a ritualization of 
one's role in the cosmos and uh, 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 maintaining and supporting and the commies. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's, I just, I find an interesting analogy there because. Yeah, um, it sounds, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. And when that functioning stops or is, you know, is disrupted, then, then it's like that continuity that, that, that energetic continuity begins to come to an end, as we saw with ancient Egypt after the. <clears throat> took a while, actually. It was like, uh, I mean, the Greek, the, the Greek period started to erode it, but I, yeah. And uh, but uh, I think I, it should be emphasized even more than I just did about the role of the pharaoh, because and that's one of the reasons I think why the civilization lasted so long. The pharaoh what had the greatest uh, import for everyone because he was this, the controlling center of Egypt, which, which followed from the, from the cosmos at uh, the center from the cosmos, the energy of the, of the center of the cosmos came to the, through the Pharaoh and down to the, the rest of Egypt. And so we have to keep that in mind all the time that why it was, it lasted so long is because the pharaoh was considered the greatest uh, means of keeping Egypt alive, and keeping Egypt as a permanent uh, energy factor for the cosmos to continue. Um, and uh, so when Tutankhamun went to Amarna. He was still the pharaoh, so he still had he still had authority, even though he he went against everything. He still had the authority to do that, and, and uh, it's just interesting to see how much power was placed in him through their through their uh, through their conception of the universe on a hierarchical levels, because the thing went from the people to the pharaoh, to the gods, and to the netters, to Atum, and everything was hierarchical, and people felt that, they believed that, that that was their, their duty to, to keep that going. And, uh, and the pharaoh was an integral part of that whole uh, conception, so... So I guess the quest that begs the question of um, because of our modern notions of hierarchy and particularly as Rob mentioned earlier, the question about uh, hierarchical systems can be abused by people who are focused on power that uh, in a way, I guess the question I have in, in your understanding is, is the power of the Pharaoh uh, was that more of a symbolic I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a symbolic rule, much like uh, in, in ancient China, uh, an emperor had the mandate of heaven. So as long as you performed your role appropriately, mm-hmm. that was fine. You, you could be a yeah. power, power grubber or whatever, but uh, uh, if, you, if you didn't perform your role, uh, your symbolic role or the place you know, in society... Mm-hmm. Uh, then there would be consequences, you know, uh, where you know, strife with the, the the class of the priests, perhaps strife with the army, things like that. Mm-hmm. And 
we certainly see that arising in Akhenaten's uh, tenure because he went against the, he sort of stepped out of the prescribed role of the pharaoh. And uh, that had consequences. And as you say, he was a short-lived... Yes, but you can't go out of of your role. That's the whole thing in ancient Egypt. That is your role. You cannot leave it. You are the pharaoh. And so that's why, you know, they didn't just say, well, you go live there and we'll continue over here. No, he still had the authority of the pharaoh when he left. And and, uh, when you talk about the abuse of hierarchical levels, that's has nothing to do with ancient Egypt. That is really on the on the level of, of man. And I like you say, the Pharaoh is symbolic. He's a sim he's a symbol of a higher level. And uh so to talk about worried about abuses in in hierarchy, uh it's it's possible in our civilization. And it's possible even in ancient Egypt, I'm sure. But we have to look at it on a symbolic level where where the pharaoh's role, without the pharaoh, everything would collapse in ancient Egypt. It would have collapsed completely. There would, there would be no civilization if the pharaoh was, was killed. or Not killed, but if, you, if the institution of the pharaoh was destroyed, they would destroy the everything. Because nothing would be in its right place. So, so could I understand this in, in a way if I look at the Catholic Church and look at the function of a priest... You know, there, there's a a role and a person who's playing this very important ritual role. It really doesn't matter what the personality of the priest is as long as they play the role, because yeah. the role is a, a part of the reification or the uh, 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 reinstantiation of the, uh, the 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 spiritual symbol yes. that that is providing the communion for the uh, 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 participants? Well, it goes to a certain point. If you're a pedophile, that doesn't help. And it's the same thing in ancient Egypt. You had to uh, to be a, take the function of the priest. You, you were supposed to be without, uh, without uh, what do you call it? Without, I don't speak English much anymore, <laughs> living in France. <laughs> But without uh, stain, you should yeah. be without stain. Uh, that's one of the criteria, whatever that may mean at that time. I don't know. Uh, so a priest in ancient Egypt has nothing to do with the priest in our time. It was just a function. It was just a function to keep things going. And uh, Well, I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to uh, make the analogy that uh, there's a functional role of, there's a, of, of, of the priest. Uh, that should be separated from the person who's inhabiting that role. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it is, because I, I think I, I think it's important. You know, it's, one could read your book and say, "Oh, you, you've got this starry-eyed view of ancient Egypt. Everything was perfect. People weren't people, and stuff like that." And I don't, I don't actually read you saying that. I, I, and from this conversation, I think you have a realistic view of the strengths and weaknesses of uh, human consciousness, ancient and modern, and that nonetheless, the strength of the institution and the ritual reenactment that the institution supported provided a kind of energy 
a psychic energy or a maintenance of the cosmos, as it, as it will, that mm-hmm. is reflected by the endurance of that particular civilization. Excellent. And we have other examples with other civilizations, and we have plenty of examples where this comes to an end. And yeah, things must inevitably come to an end. Yeah, even ours. We just may be on the cusp of it right now. Yeah, we we may be. <laughs> we don't know. The, the hard thing is we just don't know how long that, uh, you know, when we talk about things like Kali Yugas, how long does that last? Are we talking yeah. about? Is it gonna be if you go into the, into the Vedas, uh, is millions and millions of years, I think, were the first uh, Yuga was millions of years. And, you know, so I, I don't know. We may have a while yet. <laughs> I hope so. For my children, anyway. So, uh, you know, one of the uh, elements in the uh, book that I thought was uh, interesting also is that um, you go into some detail about the uh, some of the elements, the Egyptian elements of the um, the spiritual nature of man. And there are some terms that have come up, and you see them now in some uh, uh, modern sort of uh, folks who like to take take on Egyptian symbolism. But there's a couple I wanted you to. Uh, there's there's three that I wanted to talk about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, making the kind of the toward the end of the show here. Uh, one is the ba, the other is the ka, and then the third is the ach. So maybe, uh, so these are, uh, the Ba and the Ka are the more familiar, that these come up in a lot of the punary texts and uh, symbols. So why don't we start with what the Ba represents in a human and what the Ka represents in a human. You know, if you read the literature, you'll find that each person you read has a different conception of what the Ba and the Ka and the Ak are. And uh, so my understanding, which you can take or leave it, is that the Ba for me, has to do with the psychic personality of the of the individual. It's it's because it's immaterial, but it's on the level of the earth. So, uh, and it it can leave the body. It it's 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 free to go, but it has to come back to the body to be rejuvenated. And it's usually when the body. Uh, is in the tomb, then the Ba is free to go out and meet the Ka. Now, what is the Ka? The Ka, according to my understanding, which you can take or leave it again, is uh, is a vital force that we all have in us. There's a personal Ka, and there's the cosmological Ka, which is the vital energy in us, and the vital energy it's in us because it's the same energy that's in the cosmos. And when the Ba and the Ka can meet, this is the essential nature of the Egyptian religion. Because when the Ba, your personal self, can be infused with the Ka, the vital energy, then you become, become an Ak, which is a transfigured being. And when that happens... 
then it's uh, this is the final stage. You're in Ak. You can be one of the circumpolar stars. A circumpolar star never sets, so you're immortal as a as an Ak. Uh, am I? Is that sound? Yeah, it sounds. Uh, well, you can so- take. <laughs> It's self it's self consistent. Yeah, it's self consistent. I, I think the the interesting thing to me about the Ak was the this radiant body or the transformed body. Um, uh, one of the things you assert that that these symbols could be read as speaking of transformation of a human being, the transformational potential of a human being within their lifetime. Yes. Whereas most Egyptologists uh, configure this as a uh, uh, a experience or a transformation that happens after one's physical death. Yes, I make it. I made a lot of my, a friend of mine. He read my book and he said yeah, I made too many points about that, but I think it's true. I think it's uh, that a lot of the symbolism has to do with uh, the possible spiritual rejuvenation of a man. Not in this life, in in his life, not only, not for the afterlife. I think that all the information about the afterlife are symbols for the what can happen in in this life. That everything is a symbol for the in the uh, transformation of consciousness in this life, not not after one's death. So. And the the challenge, you know, and I think this is where Egyptologists would probably challenge is that um, it's not clear in the Egyptian written record that there's any evidence of a mystical interpretation of these uh, 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 stories or these uh, 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 depictions. I'm, I'm curious, have you run across that, that critique or that... Um, the what, pardon have you run across that critique? Oh yeah, oh sure. I mentioned the critique in the book, even, uh, and I, because there is nothing that specifically says that. But it, there is some things in the pyramid text that says this text is good for your afterlife, but it is also good for a man in this life. And it, it says that three or four times in the pyramid text. So that's one little bit of evidence, you know. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure what what would constitute evidence there, because certainly we have indirect evidence that uh, uh, Greek society had uh, myst- mystical rites, but we don't know anything about them. We yes. just know that they existed, but we don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, if we did, uh, and, and they were supposed to be uh, condemned to silence, you know, for what went on. But I guess, would would you assert that the people who would partake of these rites would be the priestly class or, or would, you know, how would, how would this information function for someone? How would someone, uh, well, it's not, you don't, it wouldn't be for somebody they picked up off the street. Obviously these rituals were for mostly for the Pharaoh, you know, and and for the higher uh, class of people around the pharaoh, and that these rituals were done for them, is for the mass of the people. This didn't this didn't 
count, you know. Right, but there's a distinction, I guess, and, and maybe I'm not understanding this correctly. There's doing the ritual on behalf of someone. So uh, reading the pyramid text, reading the texts, uh, depicting the texts in the tomb, all of this, that, that, all under, that to me speaks to transformation after death. Um, but for someone to engage in transformation in life, it seems that there has to be more of an active... Uh, well, but uh, if you look at, at, at those rituals as symbols... They could be looked at as symbols for a man in this life, right? It, it all depends how you how you read it, you know. It, well, that, and that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get at is how would that function for uh, a human being in Egyptian society to transform themselves in life? Well, there was this uh, with every temple. There was a place called the House of Life, and in this House of Life is where the people of a higher uh, class could go. And we don't really know because it wasn't explained, but in these houses of life, they, they kept documents that the priests could only go there and the people and the Pharaoh and around him. And maybe they had these rituals there in this house of life, but we don't know. I'm just surmising, you know, but uh, there it, it could be that these other rituals were done in private. Now, I don't know, you know. Uh, right. So, but I, I can't imagine a civilization at that period of our, of, of, uh, of our civilizations that didn't have a spiritual aspect because everything that, that has before the Greeks was all based on, on the spiritual project. It just if you look at all the civilizations, Mesopotamia, uh, Persia, there was also everything, and, and in the Middle Ages, everything was based on a spiritual project. It wasn't just after you die, you're going to go to heaven. It was based on, on, on having rituals so persons could find something new, something different, something beyond their daily life. And I can't imagine Egypt not being the same, that they had rituals for that, for those who could understand what was going on. And that was a very few. The mass of the people were peasants, obviously, growing food in there. So. So, so but as you described that, I guess it, it, it sounds like um, the, there was, access to transformation was uh, uh, available to the elites. Uh, is there any evidence that uh, it was more wi widely available or was it this more a function of um, an understanding that you, you were born into your place and uh, you, 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 you went from there? I think basically that, but I think if somebody for some reason had, uh, somehow, and maybe he was a peasant somewhere, but somehow he was, he had found something in himself and he could become, uh, initiated into something greater. I think he could find his way. I know, did you read her back? Uh, no, I haven't read that book. You should, because it's about somebody like that who, uh, who was from 
a lower class, but had a, a fine sensibility and went into the temple and found his way and became, you know, an initiate. It's very interesting, these books. Uh, they were written by his wife, uh, Schwaller de Lubitsch's wife. Got it. <clears throat> well, we're getting uh, close to the uh, end of our time, so I uh, would like to also ask about what you are working on next, having uh, 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 completed this project of, I guess, uh, 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 many years. And yes. you, you just mentioned that you have published a couple of other books. Do you have any other projects? Uh, uh, are you taking doing more with this this particular work, or are there other projects you have in mind? No. I'm not quite sure, to be honest with you. Uh, and there's this a novel I wanted to write. Uh, because I had another sort of amazing experience uh, when I was uh, in, in uh, it's when I, I met my wife, my second wife, and uh, this whole thing around that, I, I could bring in a lot of, of things about meeting her, but also bringing in my past life and so forth. I, I'm not sure at all what I'm going to do, but uh, there's something about that that I, I want to get rid of my past in that way too. So I, I might want to read, I might do that novel. And there's something, I keep thinking about something more in Egypt that I, I could do, taking one particular thing and, and expand it. I don't know yet. Now maybe I was thinking maybe taking one of the so-called books on the, uh, walls of the uh, king's tombs in the Valley of the Kings and just try to explain the, all the symbolism in, in one of those. Uh, but I don't know. I really, I really don't know. I would like to do that. I think that would be very interesting to try to decipher in my own way what that would mean, you know. So I meant to ask if uh, when you studied uh, hieroglyphics, how far you got in... Um being able to read directly the... Uh, uh, read directly, no. I can't read directly. I, I put it into the transliteration. You yeah. know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. There's this language that is uh, made for Egyptologists. You take the hieroglyphs, you put them in this language that all Egyptologists know, and then you translate that into whatever language you want. Okay. And and that's what I I, I do. I, I I cannot look at it and read directly several words. I can now because I've done a lot. So, but most of the time I have to look up look it up in a dictionary and and you know. Well, one, of the the, one of the challenges is they didn't write their vowels, so we have no idea what it actually sounded like. And not only that, you, there's no punctuation, so you don't know whether a character belongs to the word before or after half the time, you know, and so it's a, it takes a lot of experience to be able to translate, translate. Yeah. Well, I, I just found a book, uh, I think of James Allen, uh, just came out uh, with yeah. a book called Egyptian Phonology. Uh, and, and he tries to start, you know, use all the uh, linguistic tools to try to make some claims about how Middle Egyptian might have been pronounced based off of... Uh, Coptic, which is the latest form, and, and some of the uh, maybe, but who cares how it's pronounced? Really, I mean, you know, I don't. Nobody oh. speaks it, so you know. it's interesting so. to try to understand the symbolism for me, anyway. Yeah. 
Because you, I'm sorry. You mean? No, go ahead. No, I was just saying you can you can read something phonetically. Uh, Egypt is a very, I mean, you know, you've said you studied it. It's a phonetic language, but it's also each each hieroglyph is a symbol. So there's a whole other level you can read it or add to it to the phonetic by looking at the symbol and what it may mean. Uh, so it's it's is a complexity unbelievable, you know. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the the time this uh, morning or this evening for you, and uh, uh, it's been a very interesting conversation. Uh, a lot of thought provoking material and symbolism, modern thought in ancient Egypt. So. Uh, congratulations on the book and uh, thank you uh, for spending time with us today thank you well thank you for having me believe me uh, (laughs) i was very surprised that you wanted to have me on but uh, Uh, we we were sent a copy of the book from our mutual friend richard whitaker right i know i know so yeah so we appreciated that so again thank thank you for joining us on the mystical positivist okay thank you You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Michael Halswang, author of Symbolism, Modern Thought, and Ancient Egypt. Michael is an independent writer, translator, and researcher in the fields of ancient civilizations, Egyptology, psychology, and spirituality. He has published various articles on these themes in European periodicals. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussions of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.